I tell you, if you haven't had to call on the name of Jesus this week, I hope you have to call on him this coming week just to see how intimate, how he's always in the same room, how he always comes through. Bless that name. And this morning as we continue in our journey through the book of John, verse by verse, we will see that intimacy of God and the Father reflected because Jesus and the Father are one. I want you to turn in your Bibles this morning to John chapter 10, verses 22 through 42. That's John chapter 10, verses 22 through 42. And if you found the sacred scripture, just shout out Jesus. And would you please stand for the reading of God's inerrant, infallible word. John 10, 22 through 42. And the word of God says this. At the time of the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's house bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I say, you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father has consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming? Because I say, I am the son of God. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, 
but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to a place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading, the hearing, but most importantly, the understanding and living of his holy word. You may be seated. We see that there are several governing themes in this chapter, or really in this gospel of John, that are Christological and that are moving us to that conclusion that we find in John 20, 30 through 31. And this is what it says. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we praise you and we give you glory. We give you glory for the fact that you have given us the faith to believe in your Son, Christ Jesus, and you have given us the fortune that is found in him. Now we are all recipients of his benefits, and now we all have the security that that life in him offers us. Teach us today that there is no division between your will, O God, and Christ's will, or your purpose, O God, and the purposes of Christ, or your love and care for us, O God, and the love and care for us from Christ. For you and Christ are one. We pray all of this in the matchless name of Christ our Lord, and all God's children said, Amen. Amen. Praise God. Here we're dealing with these unbelieving Jews, and you see that they're attacking Jesus, but we're going to see that Jesus is going to prove without a shadow of a doubt that he and the Father are one. When we look at verses 22 and 26 of the 10th chapter of John, it says this, At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name, they bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. So John is speaking about the Feast of Dedication here uh, that was started back in 167 B.C. And we see as Epiphanes overran Jerusalem and he polluted the temple and he set up this pagan 
altar. He wanted to displace the altar of Israel. And as the Jews were dealing with this brutal oppression, and at this time, the mere possession of any part of the Hebrew scriptures was deemed as a capital offense. So what did the Jews do? Many of them revolted and they developed this art of guerrilla warfare. And as they fought and fought, they eventually grew strong enough to overthrow their oppressors under the leadership of Judas Maccabeus. They recaptured the temple and they reconsecrated it to God in 25 Kislev, which is around December on our calendar. The people celebrated the rededication of the temple for eight days and they decreed that a similar uh, dedication and celebration should happen at the beginning of the 25th of Kislev, Kislev, which we now call Hanukkah. It's also called the Feast of Lights because of the lighting of the lamps and the candles in the Jewish homes that were lit to celebrate the feast. All of those symbols are to show that they had the right to worship and the right to worship had appeared to them in a time where they did not see it. That the glory of God had shone upon them. Now this was unlike the Feast of Tabernacles because the Feast of Tabernacles couldn't be celebrated in your home. You had to go to Jerusalem. John mentions that this happened in the winter. He probably does this because he wanted to show that Jesus was in the temple walking in Solomon's portico on the east side of the temple. The cold weather probably drove him and other disciples in and Jesus would walk and teach them. John wanted to mention this detail because many of the first believers after the resurrection would regularly gather here and proclaim that Jesus was the Christ. Acts 5 and 12 reminds us of this. Not many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. John shows us again here in 1024 that there is an anticipation uh, that's burning in the hearts of these unbelieving Jews. They gather around Jesus and ask him, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. The Jewish leadership here, as we look through the Gospels, were many times a thorn in Jesus' side. But here, it's uncertain whether they were pressing their own entrance. You know, the way this is rendered in the ESV, it says, how long will you keep us in suspense? Or it could be rendered in a more negative way in the Greek, how long are you going to ignore us? So here the question is, if it's the latter, then you see that the Jews are antagonistic against Jesus. But if it's the former, they may not be his adversaries, but they may just be questioning, hey, Jesus, what is your true status? 
Can you clear that up for us once and for all? I think the context that follows verse 24 here proves that the former is more likely. The Jews here are not suggesting that they want more clarity in order that they can worship Jesus without restraint. Rather, they want to obtain from him an unambiguous statement that will give them adequate basis for their attack against him. They want him to say, I am God. Jesus was unlikely to oblige them. If you look through the scriptures, not once in his public discourse in a Jewish context that he explicitly uh, declared that he was the Messiah. Yeah, I think we can look at John 4.26 and we can see in a private conversation with the Samaritan woman, he was really prepared to do so. I think when we look further in to the New Testament, going back up to Matthew, I think he hints at it when he speaks to his disciples in Matthew 16, 13, and he says, who do people say that the Son of Man is? This, this is quite a declaration for Jesus to make in public, especially in a Jewish environment, because they knew that the term Messiah was the equivalent to the term Christ. But from their understanding, Jesus recognized it had too many political and too many military connotations to it. Remember, the Jews were looking for a deliverer that would come and take them out of the oppression of the Roman government and put them on top. So if Jesus had really spoken to them more plainly, they still wouldn't have believed him. They would have been so confused that he's speaking of being the son of God who would be a suffering servant, not a mighty king that would reign right now. So Jesus is about to make the same point to them, and once again we're going to see that they do not believe him. Look at John 10.25. Jesus answers them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. When Jesus says, I told you here, he's not referring to some explicit statement that he's made earlier. He's already showed us that if he had spoke to them plainly, they would have misunderstood him. They had totally different notions of what it meant to be the Messiah they were looking for someone who would come and immediately install the kingdom and take over politically and militarily if he had shared with them that he was his suffering servant, that this was not his kingdom, but he brought the kingdom with him. They would have seen him as no more than a con man or a fool. But when he tells them, I have told you, he's telling them, that my actions speak louder than words. Look at John 5, 15 through 17. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus that had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. 
But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. Then when you look at John 5, 36 through 40, But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. He's speaking here of John the Baptist. For the works that my father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the father has sent me. And the father who sent me has himself bore witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Now he lays it out. You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. See, Jesus is saying, I have made it plainly known to you who I am and who it is that has sent me. But you refuse to hear my voice. You can't hear my voice because you're not my sheep. You won't recognize my voice. You don't understand my mission. You reject it. And think about this. He said all of these statements, and just think about two or three weeks ago, we're in chapter 9, and this same Jesus heals a blind man born from birth, and they still have a problem believing. You take all of this, With the tone of his teaching, it speaks volumes for him. And Jesus is saying, I am the Messiah. The problem here is you don't believe. And why don't they believe, Pastor? Because they are not his sheep. Because his sheep hears his voice. Look at John 10, 26 through 27. Jesus still speaking. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. New Life, can you explain the sheer stupidity of these hearers? Can it only be because they do not belong in Jesus' flock? It's not only that Jesus is saying his sheep hear his voice, his sheep They know him. His sheep follow him. But he's really saying, but those who aren't my sheep don't hear my voice. They don't know me and they cannot follow me. I don't think Jesus or John means to reduce this to a moral responsibility of those who are unbelievers in the slightest. But the fact that they are not the sheep of Jesus does not excuse them. It indicts them. I think there's a predestination, a pre-tone here that ensures that even in this massive unbelief, it wasn't surprising to Jesus. It's suspected. It falls under the umbrella of God's sovereignty. 
Turn, if you will, to John 6, verses 40 through 44. I think you're going to see this predestinarian tone that I'm speaking of. John 6, 40 through 44. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. There is an assurance that comes with knowing Jesus and a protection from being led astray or being taken away by any other shepherd. I think the 28th verse here ensures that. Look at what Jesus says in John 10, 28. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. To his own sheep, Jesus gives eternal life. He's already told us last week that he gives us life and life more abundantly He plainly states that this life is eternal life. This life is hidden within him. He speaks of it in other metaphors, water, bread, light, good pasture. But most importantly, he's sharing with us that the consequence of knowing Jesus is the gift of eternal life. And he makes an incredible promise. We shall never perish. And this is not the first time that Jesus has made this promise. He does it all through the book of John. Jesus said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. John 6, 51 Jesus said, truly, truly, I said to you, anyone who keeps my word will never see death. John 8, 5, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, yet he die, he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? John 11, 25 through 26. Even though the focus here is not just on the power of life itself, but on the power of Jesus to protect and preserve us. No one can snatch us out of his hand. Not some wolf, not some thief, not some robber, no one. There is, and you have to recognize this this morning, there is ultimate security in Jesus Christ. In fact, that's the only place there is any security. It's in Jesus Christ. 
How many more things have to fail before your eyes to you, for you to believe that? I'm telling you, this week, it's like Jesus had been in, in the room. In several situations, just his power to intervene in things that are going on just shows incredible care and intimacy that he will step in. Jesus gives us a foundation for this certainty that he's just laid out to us. Look at verse 29 in John 10. My father has given them to me, or rather my father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. He's saying his father is greater than any other being, any other activity, any other move to disrupt. He's greater than all of those things, and no power has the power to snatch us out of his hand. That God is independent of all of these things, but Jesus is not independent of God. Jesus always speaks about doing his Father's will. John 6, 37 through 40. All that the Father gives me, uh, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should not lose anything of all that he's given me, but what? Raise it up on the last day. What an insurance that we will be raised up on the last day to meet him in the air. For this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus is saying, do you recognize that no one can steal from God? That no one has the strength, no one is sufficient enough, no one can outwit or overpower my sovereign father. My father is greater than all of them, and no one can snatch his people out of his hand. God is greater than all things, greater than all persons, greater than any possession. No force, no being is sufficient to sever our relationship of a true believer in Christ Jesus. Paul says it in Colossians 3.3, your life is what? Hidden in Christ, in God. There's no greater security because Christ and the Father are one. Jesus says, I and the Father are one, John 10 and 30. And when he says this, he is, we have all, John already introduced us to the fact that we look back at John 1. He's introduced us to the fact that the Word was God, and God was with the Word. 
So he's, give, he's given us the distinctiveness that there's Jesus and then there is God the Father. So when he says they're one, he's saying that they are one because they move perfectly in action. They are one because Jesus does what the Father does and the Father does what Jesus does. Jesus says to us in John five nineteen. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do what? Nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does what? Likewise. I mean, when we look at this, we see that the Jews were seeking to kill him in this verse as well because he was breaking the Sabbath, that he was calling himself equal with God. And the Jews here were partly right and partly wrong. They were wrong because they envisioned another God competing with God. That's not what Jesus is saying. He says there's no competition here. We are one. And then they didn't realize that Jesus was the Son of God, that he had the same motives, the same power, the same methodology that the Father has. That he just wasn't claiming to be equal with God, but he was the same as God. No other human could have made this claim, and no other human has. The oneness of will the task is a divine will, a divine task. What is it? The saving and the preservation of men and women for his kingdom. You know, it's important, I think, to understand that in John's gospel, Jesus is shown uniquely as that son. All of us are children of God, but he's the son of God. He's the one that's come down from heaven. He's a good shepherd. He's the one that gives us life. He's a true vine. He's a light of the world. He is the word made flesh. Praise God that we are heirs and co-heirs with Christ Jesus. But only if we suffer with him will we what? Reign with him. Jesus fulfills all the prophecies of the Old Testament. He is a word made flesh. He is a reason that scripture cannot be broken. Look at John 10, 31 through 33. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered, I have shown you many good words from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. It's not Jesus' first rodeo here. He's had to deal with this in John 5.18 and in John 8.59. Stoning was a means of execution. In all three instances here, the desire of the Jews sprang from their perception perception that Jesus was wrong in claiming oneness with God 
and equality with God. Now, the Roman authorities reserved capital cases for their own discretion. They were the only ones that could put someone to death, and they preferred crucifixion. But many times you could see in Israel that mobs would easily get out of hand, and because they were so fiercely proud of their religious heritage, uh, their lynching law, their stoning law, could easily prevail. And it's often overlooked that really, when you looked at the Mishnah and you looked at the rules of blasphemy, it required the guilty person to pronounce the name of God, the Tetragrammaton, which we would describe today as saying Yahweh. But the mobs took upon themselves on several times to take the law into their own hands. So Jesus asked them from the, the many miracles that you've seen from the Father, which one of these have earned your wrath? And they boldly said, well, it's not for a good words we're stoning you. We're stoning you because you claim to be equal to God. In a Jew's way of thinking, this was incredibly offensive that the Son of Man called himself the Son of Man. That he who is the eternal word, the one that was with God and the one that was God, the unique son, the one who had been obedient to his father in everything that was asked of him, the word who became flesh, now becomes the Son of Man. Look at Jesus answers them in 34 and 36 of chapter 10. Jesus said to them, is it not written in your law? I say you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming? Because I said, I am the son of God. Jesus appeals to the Mosaic law here. And really, he's quoting for them Psalm 82, 6, and 7. It really, this is being where he's drawing this from, from the Septuagint. Psalm 82, 6, and 7 says this, I say you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like man you shall die and fall like any prince. Jesus is saying, okay, we see in Scripture that it's legitimate. And remember here when it says, you are God's, it's a small g. It's legitimate to refer to leaders of others as God's. But just as the Scripture says, those of you, you are just like man. You will die like man and you will fall like any other priest. So why would you object when one is sent, consecrated by God, who says he is the son of God, why would you say that he is blaspheming? Because God is the one that sent Jesus Christ, and he set aside for his own use. The curse that 
had fell upon the Israelites was in consequence to their golden calf episode. When they, because Moses had been away for so long, they believed that Moses wasn't coming back and they wanted to create their own God. But all the time, they were blaspheming the name of God when they gathered all of the gold and throwing it into the fire and making a golden calf for themselves that they worshiped and that they said, this is who delivered us out of Israel. But the Son of God, the one who is a human bearer, the word with flesh on it, comes into their view. They deny him the honor that he is due. Even though the Father himself has set him apart for his use. You know, there's a hint of this relationship between Christ and the temple that they didn't understand that came up in John 2, 19 through 22. Jesus answered them, destroy the temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said to him, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? He was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So Jesus gives them this short, sharp, scriptural reason why they should not take umbrage when he calls himself the Son of God, but they should see him as the one who has been sent into the world. Then he challenges them once again in 37 and 38. If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you don't believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. In the midst of mob violence, in the midst of a threat of death, Jesus appeals to the evidence that has already been shown by what he has done through his Father's power. He doesn't expect his claims to be believed just on their worth, but he says, if you see me not doing what God does, don't believe me. But if you see me doing what God does, and you still don't believe me, believe what God has done. How can they be so ignorant of the fact that they cannot bring themselves to see who Jesus is when he has done acts that no other man has ever done? And he continues to do it. And he continues to do it with the force and the fervency of a loving shepherd. Never braggadocious, never standing on his own, but always referring back to his father that the son can do nothing that unless his father gives him the power to do. There's a coherence here that each one is in the other. God is in Christ and Christ is in God. 
He tells them again in 39 as they sought to arrest him and escape from their hands that he was the true vine, that he's the true light. How many times have we seen the Lord move in our life in such a way? And now, even though we're praying for the Lord to move, but he does it in such an unexpected way to get to the same outcome. And we are so overwhelmed by what he's doing that we miss that he did it. Jesus goes back across the Jordan here, back to the east side, the place where John has been baptizing in those earlier days. And we see here, this is a place we find him at the close, really, of uh, the ministry of John the Baptist. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everyone that John said, or everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him. Remember when John was baptizing, and his disciples came to him and said, look, Jesus is baptizing as if they could start a controversy. And John says, what? I must decrease, and he must increase. He recognized that there was no cross purposes here. That they're all on team Jesus. And that he's the same one that he, John, recognized that Jesus is the one that he has proclaimed that was coming, that he wasn't even fit to tie his lashes on his sandals. He had no problem with moving to the side and allowing the ministry of Jesus to flourish. But this one statement has really just haunted me all week that says that everything that John said about this man was true. What a statement to be put on your gravestone that everything they said about you was true. And I know they didn't believe that. But my question, I guess, is do we believe it? Do we believe that everything that John has said about Jesus is true? And if we believe that, then why do we threat? Why do we worry? Why are we locked up? Why don't we recognize that the same God in the home is the same God in this house? And that he has the ability to protect us in, a, in any situation. That if we continue to hone our relationship with Jesus, and, and you know how you hone your relationship with Jesus? Just by being obedient. By trusting him. By testing him. By watching his marvelous works day by day. 
Slow it down and just take in in a day how many things he's done for you. How many ways he's blessed you. What he's kept you from. Every time you drive past an accident that was like three cars ahead of you, why were you back here and not up there? Every time you're searching for your keys and you're frustrated for 20 minutes and they shut down 37 because something happened and that was your route. Do you, do, you know, do you get it at all? Do you understand? The most sinful wor- word in the English language is coincidence. There is no such thing. God is the God of all. He is sovereign. And he orchestrates everything that happens. Good and bad. Because all things work together for good for those who love the Lord and those who are called according to his purpose. You have never taken the full hit of any blow in your life. Because if you are in Christ Jesus, he has blunted every hit that was sent towards you. Yeah, you caught some residual stuff. Enough to remind you that, you know, this, the flesh, the devil, and the world. But you've never taken the full blunt. Because he loves you, and he protects you, and he provides for you. He'll take you all the way to the end of the rope and tie a knot in it. But everything that John has said about Jesus is true. And if we adopt anything this week, let us adopt that fully. Let, us, let that be re united in our spirit like never before that Jesus can be trusted even in the greatest of tests he can heal a heart he can turn a situation that seems impossible around he can enter a moment and change it in a moment You know, I don't wish ill on anybody, but I think sometimes we need to experience the goodness of the Lord by just being taken there. Because we're just, okay, sounds good, like I'm, you know, you're reading a Hallmark card or something. But he's much more than that. Much, much more. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just love and praise you, and we thank you for your son and his incredible sacrifice for us. We thank you for the fact that, Lord, you two are one on the same sheet of music. Your glory is shown through your son's obedience and willingness. Your purposes are strengthened by the fact that he is always seeking to save the sin, sick, and the lost. So Lord, let us recognize those big things, those little things that happen each day. Those God things that only happen because of your unwavering hand in our lives. 
And Lord, just build our confidence that when situations come, we are like David. Your scripture says that David ran to Goliath because he had so much faith in what you have done before. God, you were with him when the bear came. You were with him when the lion came. And you will be with him in this challenge of Goliath. So Lord, let us recognize how many times you've been with us and that that protection and provision will be there forever because we are yours. It is in the precious name of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we ask it all. And all God's children said, Amen. Thank you.